Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet on Sundays at 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, who doesn't? You can select Beacon Church of Long Island as a supporting organization and a small portion of every purchase will go to supporting the work at Beacon. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Well, good morning. I'm so glad that uh, everybody uh, made it back uh, to our second of our uh, training weeks here with the whole crowd. It's going uh, really, really well, so we do appreciate uh, you all being a part of it. And uh, we're continuing in our series called Go, and we've been uh, looking at all the different commands to go that have been found throughout the Scripture when God sends us into His great work and we're going to be, we talked a little bit last week about uh, the kind of the, the impact that a single person can make. And we ended with uh, the starfish story. We gave you a little uh, memento there to take home as a way to remember that. And today we're going to be going a little deeper into that same idea, but we're going to be looking at a very, very different passage. It's found in the book of Jonah, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And so if uh, you could open up in a Bible to Jonah chapter 1, that would be great. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers um, have them on the back. If uh, you didn't pick one up on your way in, you can just kind of raise your hand and an usher will uh, run a Bible over. There's someone over here that needs, uh, needs a Bible and there's another, I think, over here. So if you guys, the ushers, if you could grab uh, a couple of those Bibles and uh, just kind of hand them out. And uh, if uh, you don't have your own Bible, then that's a gift from us to, uh, to you. While you're uh, opening up there, I wanted to give you a little bit of background to kind of the, the Jonah and the whale story or the great fish or however people like to refer to it. And that's because a lot of people point to this story, the story of Jonah and uh, the great fish, in order to discredit the Bible. And they go, come on, look, look at the, this is ridiculous. It's a giant fish for crying out loud. Like you can't, you can't possibly believe any of this. So obviously uh, the Bible is wrong and what Jesus did isn't true. And they, they, they make all of these connections suddenly based on their resistance to a story such as this one. Uh, and of course, I, I, I have a multitude of different views about it. But one, I, the part of it that I find bewildering is that that the argument is trumpeted as the reasonable explanation, that it's the logical explanation to explain what is clearly a mythological story in the Bible, and so it must be wrong. But you see, the, the logic of the argument fails immediately because let's just for a moment consider the possibility that this really is an epic mythic tale from antiquity. Let's just consider that for a moment. All that means is that the Bible used an epic mythic tale to teach a theological truth. It does nothing to discredit the Bible. It does nothing to discredit the message of the scriptures. And it certainly has no impact on the teaching of Jesus and his life and death and his resurrection. But now, let's not jump too quickly to that scenario where we just say, well, clearly this must be 
a mythic epic tale. And the reason I say that is because most everyone you have ever met actually believes in God. There are very few genuine atheists. And usually when pushed, they actually really do believe in God too. There's very few people who won't say there must be some sort of higher power. There must be some greater creator out there to explain everything that this world is. And once you grant the possibility that there is a God, not even the probability, if you just grant the possibility that he exists, you've immediately opened up the possibility for miracles. Because God exists, he actually can break into his creation and do unusual and crazy things. And that's really sort of how the scriptures view even this. I mean, Jesus himself spoke about this event as if it really happened. And I think it really did. I think it's an historical account, not an epic myth. But the problem that I have with it, I mean, the, the reason I don't have a problem with it is because I already grant that God exists. So God can do a miraculous thing. So I don't understand. If we already believe in God, then the possibility of him creating a great fish for this moment, that's how Jesus viewed it, as a miracle. So anyway, that's kind of an aside. It's not really what I'm talking about. But uh, so here we go. The, I want to give you a quick overview of the story. I hope uh, some of you had read the e weekly email that we sent out, and we encouraged you guys to read it this week. Uh, and so I, won't, so I don't have to go over it super, super close. But let me give you just a, uh, a real quick overview. There's this Jewish prophet. He's named Jonah. He is, it's about 2,700 years ago from, from now, and this was a time in the history of the Israelite people where they were actually quite prosperous. Their enemies were busy fighting all of their own sort of internal struggles, and Israel had quite a bit of freedom and prosperity during this time. God tells Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and tell them that they needed to turn away from their sin and embrace God and his forgiveness. Now, here's the thing. Nineveh was a crazy enemy of Israel. They represented the whole of an empire that was a vicious enemy to Israel. If anyone in Israel had heard that Nineveh was going to be judged by God, they would say, good, let it roll. Like, that's sort of how we hope this thing plays out. That's what we would expect from God, that he would judge our enemies. So Jonah, living in that cultural moment, he decides to go running the other way. He gets on a boat, and he heads toward Tarshish. And, uh, you, you know, you got to kind of understand the, this a little bit. He was just above Joppa. He was told to head up and to the east to get to Nineveh. He doesn't say anything. He just bolts down to Joppa, and he, he plans a trip to go as far west as he could possibly go. I wonder what he would have done when he got to Tarshish. Just set out in the open sea? Like, that's, he's going as far as he can. So he did the exact opposite of what God told him to do. And so God sends a storm. The ship is in jeopardy of sinking. The sailors ultimately throw Jonah overboard at Jonah's request. God scoops him up in a giant fish, which, by the way, ought to be a comical moment in the story. We get all tripped up in it, but it ought to be the thing that you could tell the kids, and they would go, what? 
God did what? Yeah, giant fish just swallowed Jonah up. It would be like a fantastic Kids Quest story. And there, inside the belly of the fish, Jonah prays. He decides that he may as well go to Nineveh, since it looks like he's not, his other plan isn't working for him right now. And the fish spits Jonah up on the shore. Jonah begrudgingly does what God wants. And then amazingly, the city of Nineveh repents. God is thrilled. Jonah pouts like a little brat. So that's kind of my version of this story, my quick overview. And what we see in this, we pick up right at the very beginning, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh. Jonah says, absolutely not, jump to verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So God sends Jonah to Nineveh because they are in terrible sin and they are risking the judgment that comes from God. And God often will tell his people to go. He's constantly been telling. This whole series, we've been seeing how God has been telling his people to go and tell everyone you can about his salvation. And he sends them, hoping that they would repent and turn to the one true God. Now, I want to spend just a couple of moments here thinking about why God is so uptight about sin. Because he is, whenever, you can't read the scriptures for any amount of time and not come to the realization that he takes sin very seriously. I mean, way more seriously than we do. Why? Well, we started this series by talking about how every single person is made in the image of God. Sin mars, it damages, it defaces the image of God in us. We look less and less like God as we allow sin to impact us. We cannot fulfill our calling or even live as fully human when sin rules in our lives. Yeah, God's upset about it. We also saw that when we sin, we move away from our calling and our ultimate design. Imagine taking a pristine, fully restored classic automobile. I don't know what yours is, like maybe like a 1969 fully restored Mustang convertible or whatever your like super cool car is in your head and imagine using it as like one of the, the wrecker cars on a, on a monster truck rally. You know, you'd be like, no, it's meant for so much more than that. And God has a visceral reaction when he sees the things that he loves and cherishes being used in all of the wrong ways that dishonor them. Sin also hurts people that are made in God's image. Not just the person who's committing the sin, but of course, other people. And that seems to get God very upset. Sometimes we can see it clearly, right? So you walk up, you punch a guy in the face, you steal his wallet. I'm hoping you're not really doing that a lot, um, you know, unless it really called for it. No, it never, no, it doesn't call for it. But uh, the, you, know, you can see the effect. But sometimes you really can't always see the effect so clearly. Sometimes it's harder to see. You know, maybe you run a business and you, for whatever reason, decide you will not offer a livable wage. Is that sin? 
Well, the prophets say it is. The prophets tell us that our own selfishness will make us keep more than we need and we give less to those who need it. They talk about it on a regular basis. And you see, now we start getting into areas that are a little harder to see. They often will need to be pointed out now, but, but God sees it all. See, we may not see all of sin. He certainly does. But sin is even more complex than that and even harder to see because sin can ripple throughout time. And this is really hard, I think, for many of us to accept. But a, a quick thought exercise, I think, could show it. Let's say you've had a really... You know, you had a tough day, tough week, tough month, whatever it is, and you're having a really hard time applying biblical principles to deal with all of the stress and pressure and anxiety. So you stumble into some bad attitudes and some grumpy moments, and so you come home one day after a particularly bad day, you've kind of had enough, and you kick your dog, which is messed up. You kick your dog. Well, now your dog is in a surly mood, right? And so your dog goes out in the backyard, and all of a sudden a kid is riding his brand new bike past the yard, and the dog just goes ballistic, and he goes viciously barking after the kid and runs into the fence, and the, the kid gets all scared, and, and he runs his bike into a telephone pole, wrecks his bike. The kid, it's his, it's his pride and joy. Now what's he supposed to do? Well, how did this, this start? Is this the dog's fault? Well, yeah, and maybe your fault for kicking. And then the kid goes home, and he decides to take his anger and his frustration out on his sister. And the sister has had absolutely enough of her younger brother giving her all sorts of grief. So she decides to punish mom for how the son has been punishing, how her brother has been punishing her. And so the mom now has had absolutely, in fact, she was barely keeping it together up until this very moment. And this girl just set her off and that was it. So she flies off the handle and she makes it a point to know that when he comes home, the one who's responsible for giving her these two kids, when he comes home, he's going to pay. And so she's ready. She's simmering all night long. He ends up coming home late because he was out with friends. And so she's particularly upset. And when he comes through the door, both barrels. But boom, 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 boom. She just lays into him. And he just goes dark and quiet. Kind of goes into his own little bad place. And the next day, he says, you know what? I've had enough. I knew it. We were in trouble. I knew the marriage was on the rocks. But I have had enough. So he decides to entertain the flirtatious relationship that has been developing over the last few weeks. And this is the day he says, you know what? I think we're going to go out to lunch today, which he does. And they're having a great old time. He's running away from the, the headache that he has at home. And he's living in this little fantasy world here just for even a few moments with drinks and, and good food. Well, you see, the thing is, the woman, his coworker that he's with, her husband drives past this restaurant, just by chance, he sees her car, he goes to go peek in the window to see what she's doing there, and sees her just flirting it up and all warm and holding hands, and they're just, they're having a grand old time, and he is crushed. In fact, he's been wrestling with depression for a long time, and he resolves at that point he's got no more reason to live. And quietly, he goes home to begin his plans. 
Now you think to yourself, is this even remotely possible? And what I'm saying is the ripples of our sin continue to do damage beyond anything that we could have imagined. Every cruel word, every selfish action, every twisted thought, it can ripple through countless lives. So yeah, God gets upset because he sees it in a way that we never do. So God says, go. He says, go into the world and tell them there is a better way. It's actually no different from what Jesus himself told us at the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28, he said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. He said, go, go out there and tell them all about me. Because it's not simply telling them they have to go out there and live a better life. The good news, what the early church called the gospel, that we talk about as the good news, is so much more than a message of try harder, good luck. We've tried that. Humanity has tried that for millennia. The good news, the message that Jesus wanted us to proclaim to this world is that all people are sinners, that every single one of us deserves God's punishment for the untold misery that we have unleashed in this world through our own self-centeredness, and that we are unable to remake ourselves into something better. Yeah, you can clean up your act a little bit here and a little bit there, but the core issue, the brokenness of the human heart is something that only God can deal with. And we need to cry out to God. We have to ask for his forgiveness. And we have to pray for the power to live lives worthy of our calling as his ambassadors in this world. And Jesus assured us that his death on the cross would cover our sin, make us right with God, and that his resurrection would guarantee that we would not spend an eternity separated from God, but instead we would be with him forever. So you see, the stakes are eternally high. If we refuse to hear God's warning, if we reject his gift we spend an eternity separated from him and under his judgment. There's even a little snapshot of humanity's fruitless efforts in the sailors. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship, but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. The prophet sleeps while the sailors are scrambling for salvation. You see that picture over and over and over again. 
people in the world who are far from God. They're trying their best to make it work. They're scrambling around. They're trying to save themselves through any, any crazy amount of different sorts of pursuits. And the prophets sleep. Ultimately, Jonah is thrown overboard and the sailors live. And this is one of the very few redeeming pictures of Jonah that we have in all of the scriptures because it's a, little bit of a, it's a little bit of a promise. You see, there's something going on here. Jesus liked the Jonah story, and I think it's because there was one man who needed to go overboard so the rest of the sailors could live. You see, there's an exchange that took place, Jonah for them. It's the very exchange that sits at the heart of the Christian good news, that Jesus himself was going to be thrown into the wrath and the fury of God so that we would not have to, so that we don't have to be scrambling around trying to save ourselves because one, Jesus, would be thrown into the wrath. So yeah, God is sad. Maybe he's a bit angry when his people refuse to go. He throws the storm, he throws the fish. And he's angry at Jonah's sin because Jonah is refusing to offer hope to Nineveh in their sin. I think we should let that sink in for just a second. You see, we often think of sin as the things that we do, the wrong things we do. It's a sin of commission. But Jonah, his sin is what he did not do. It's a sin of omission. He refused to go. It's not like he went and did something to the Ninevites. It's what he refused to do that gets God so upset. And sin always does this to God. In fact, I like to talk about it in this story as sin sort of turning God's stomach. And I think that's really what the author of this book was trying to communicate to us. I think it was one of his his narrative, uh, the part of his narrative genius. So look at verse 17 of chapter 1. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Yeah, what a prayer. Beautiful, filled with all sorts of, of beautiful, flowery language. 
But even in its beauty, it cannot mask the hypocrisy and the self-centeredness of that prayer. How many times does he say, I, or me, or mine? Where is his repentance? Where is his willingness and desire to help the Ninevites? Where is his, I'm so sorry what I did? It was a terrible mistake. These people are loved by you. Where is any of that in the prayer? I think, I think God hears this prayer, and it turns his stomach, and he vomits Jonah back out onto the shore. And I sometimes wonder if our lack of compassion for those who are far from God makes God sick to his stomach. I think if we want a relationship with God that doesn't turn his stomach, that doesn't make him sick, we need to repent of our self-centeredness and think of others. So what part will you play? Last week, I mapped out for you the difference that one person could make. We started with a man named Ed Kimball. And Ed Kimball was a Sunday school teacher who had an impact on a kid named D.L. Moody, who impacted another guy named Frederick Meyer. And then there was Wilbur Chapman, and he was seriously impacted by these guys. Well, they also had a significant influence on a man named Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday, he, with some businessmen in the Chicagoland area, they started a little revival group that years later invited a man named Mordecai Ham to present the gospel. And even though Mordecai wasn't particularly good and he was kind of a, a questionable guy in some other ways, that one of those nights that he was there in Chicago, and actually, you know, he was at a conference in North Carolina, I'm sorry, he, he ended up telling the gospel story of God's love. And though very few responded, one young man did, Billy Graham. You can trace the the salvation of Billy Graham through history all the way back to a, a simple Sunday school teacher, like a Kids Quest teacher, sitting there loving on a kid. That's what we did last week. There are two detours I want to take today as we fill out this Billy Graham story just a little bit. One of them refer, goes to this guy, Billy Sunday. Some of you might know the name because he was like a baseball player before he went into, this, uh, into the preaching circuit. Anyway, Billy Sunday was significantly impacted by Wilbur Chapman, but he did not come to faith through Wilbur Chapman. He, he, it was a, a big impact, but it wasn't how he came to faith. That honor goes to a group called the Pacific Garden Mission. It is one of the oldest continuously running missions. It is still in Chicago, still reaching out to, to the hurting and the lost of the, in the streets of Chicago. And one day, Billy Sunday was out carousing with his buddies, drinking, having a great old time, drunken, the whole thing. And the way they tell the story is he heard the hymns coming from the mission. They were singing the songs that he remembered from his childhood. And in that moment, he decided... It was time to, to move toward Jesus, not away from him. So he did. And he went in there, heard a guy talking. Ultimately, he was super impressed by one of the key figures of that mission, Sarah Dunn Clark. Lost to most of us in history. You read her story, you find out that Sarah Dunn Clark was an upwardly mobile woman in New York. And she was not particularly interested in doing anything for God's kingdom, all wrapped up in her socialite kind of life. And one day as she's preparing a beautiful decoration, struggling with trying to make her house look just right for some party, she hears a voice almost audibly. 
that said, what are you doing to decorate your heavenly home? And from that moment on, her whole life and trajectory changed. She decided that she would live her life telling as many people as possible about the love of Jesus. Sarah started the Pacific Garden mission that impacted Billy Graham through Billy Sunday. So now you can go all the way back to Sarah on one side. You can go back to Ed on the other side and see how they are responsible for the work of Billy Graham. Now, Billy Graham himself is a towering figure in modern history of Christianity. He has shared God's love with over 200 million people at his crusades and some estimate billions through his radio and TV shows. It was the Los Angeles crusade in 1949 that sort of launched him into the international prominence that he enjoyed for the rest of his life. This, this LA conference was scheduled for, eight week, uh, for three weeks and the meetings were extended to over eight weeks because there were so many overflow crowds filling the tent that they just erected downtown. Many of his early crusades were similarly extended with countless people pouring in. One of them was the New York City Crusade in Madison Square Garden, 1957. If you've been around in Christian circles for a long time, you'll remember the 1957 Billy Graham Crusades. They had such a huge impact in our area. They actually ran nightly for 16 weeks. That's how incredibly popular they became. There was another man by the name of Ed who actually went to that crusade in 1957. Edward Poppy, a handsome man. It's where he first heard the gospel preached. He first heard the message of, he had grown up in church, but he hadn't heard it. It wasn't the kind of thing you'd hear at most of the churches. He heard the story of God's love, and through the crusade, he was matched up with a church, actually a church right out here in Wontaw, Wontaw Baptist Church. And that's my father-in-law. He spent many years away from God, but never forgot the commitments he had made during those early years of his faith through Billy Graham's ministry. So any of the impact that my wife has had comes from the impact her father had on her. He led the entirety of the family to faith in Christ. Any impact she has, when she had a huge impact on my journey, I was living far away from God if it hadn't been for my wife, fiancé, girlfriend at the time. You wonder what would have happened. If my sons have any sort of impact in this world, they trace it back to Ed Poppy, who goes back through history to, to Ed Kimball and to Sarah Dunn. If any of you have been in any way impacted by the work and the ministry of Beacon, any influence that you have for generations to come goes back to a New York socialite who decided that she would live her life so that it mattered for the good news of God. It goes back to a Sunday school teacher who decided to go when he heard the command of his God. From Sarah 
and Ed to Ed Poppy to the work that Beacon does and who knows what will happen in the future. See, the ripples, they work against us when it comes to sin, but they work for us in Christ. So will you share? Will you tell the story? Will you tell the story of God, how he impacted your life, of forgiveness in Christ that is found? Will you tell the story? Because there's some kid from New Jersey that years from now needs to hear that message. So are you running away from your calling? Are you going up into the fight as God has called you to? Or are you fleeing down and away? Are you sleeping through your mission while the world scrambles for salvation? Are you busy with self-centered prayers filled with me and my and mine rather than taking the bold steps needed to share God's love with people all around you? He told Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh. And he is telling us, go to the great city of New York. Cover the county of Nassau with my message of love. Go to your family and go to your friends and go to your co-workers and go to your neighbors and tell them they need a savior and that he desperately loves them. This is our hope and our prayer for each and every one of us that we will heed the call to go. I'm going to ask uh, that uh, the band come up here and I'm just going to say a word of prayer as, uh, as they do and get us ready to go into worship and leading us into the Lord's table. So let's pray. Father, what we're asking for today is that you would reveal to us the depths of your great love. How much, Father, that you adore and long for a relationship with each and every one of us and all of those who are far from you. And how, Lord, you have designed it such that we will lead people to come and to know you, to find you, that we would tell your story, that we would live our lives consecrated to you. There are folks even here, Lord, that, that don't yet know you as, as Lord and Savior. I pray that they would hear the story even today and that they would come to accept you and trust you. There are folks here who have never stepped out in courage and faith to share the story of your love. I pray that this week they would. I pray that you would, would just give them, Lord, this overwhelming, compelling sense of your call on their lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.